This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hello, I'm Cameron McCormick, and welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. You're about to listen to episode four, in which you're going to be thoroughly entertained and educated by a wide-ranging conversation that Corey had with Eddie Pepperell and Laurie Cantor a few weeks back when he traveled to Italy to support several European tour clients. In fact, the conversation fueled by some great Italian food and maybe a couple of glasses of wine ran so long we've split it up into two parts. Part one is a chat with Eddie and part two to be released soon is a chat with both of them, a round table if you will. So before we get into the action, a couple of quick reminders. First, if you haven't listened to the previous three episodes, you're falling behind. So spend the time to catch up and take those knowledge nuggets that we're sharing and put them to good use. And second, we're giving away a Titleist TS driver. That's that new driver that was just released to the PGA and European Tour players at the US Open two weeks back. So you heard it correctly. Yep, you can win the new Titleist TS driver for getting your friends, colleagues, and social media followers to subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is compile screenshots of those subscriptions and message them to info at altersperformance.com. Then at the end of the week, we'll be counting them up and the person who recruits the most subscribers will be the winner. So enough from me now. Please enjoy part one of this amazing conversation inside the mind of Eddie Pepperell. Hello, I'm Corey Lumberg, and welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast, where our objective is to decode the difference makers that high performers possess. What are the ways and means that they use to earn their edge to create separation from the masses as they travel the pathway to mastery? And today we are joined by European tour players, Eddie Pepperell and Lori Cantor, in what is probably the most beautiful setting that we could possibly find to conduct a, a interview. I am in Italy for the week for the Italian Open, and we've just had dinner. Lori has convinced his bed and breakfast owner to let us hang out on the outdoor patio, conduct our interview, enjoy some wine. Uh, there's a, a beautiful Italian sunset that we're overlooking, along with a cobbled road below. Uh, I tell you that because we may create a few audio issues there as we have some passing vehicles and possibly even conversations that we pick up, but we will rely on producer extraordinaire Cordy Walker to edit any of that out. With that said, we want to start with our conversation with Eddie, who in this part of the world needs no introduction, but I'll provide a bit of background for our American listeners. If there was only one professional golfer that I could follow on Twitter for the rest of my life, it would definitely be Eddie. Between Twitter and his blog, he shares some brilliant, candid, and often hilarious insights on his experiences on the golf course and professional golf, among other topics. So for obvious reasons, we're very excited to have him on. Uh, a little bit of background on his playing. He had a celebrated junior golf career in England and turned professional in 2013, where he quickly won on the Challenge Tour before gaining full status on the European Tour, where very recently he won for the first time this season. And that's where we want to start with our conversation in an article that came out shortly after the win. I read a quote where you described yourself as far more artist than scientist uh, on the golf course. And so my curiosity became if that artistry is something that you see as an edge that you have over other players. And if so, how did that develop? You know, was it part of how you learned how to play? Was it part of your environment growing up? Where did that artistry come from? Well, I think that was my natural tendency you know there, there are guys who i guess 
grow up on driving ranges and there are guys who grow up on path three courses and I was that guy grew up on a path three course so and I wasn't a big kid so I you know I was always a shorter hitter relative to a number of guys so for me if I was to gain an advantage when I was a kid it was through short game and those types of things so yeah so growing up I think in, there was that inherent thing built in almost due to a physiological thing uh, a disadvantage if you like that so for example I grew up playing a lot of golf with Tommy Fleetwood who was a big kid hit the ball a mile he would hit his seven wood past my driver and so I had to you know if I was going to beat Tommy I've got to do something different right so uh, I think in naturally you know if you if you, therefore if you have to make that up in a short game way or that type of thing then I think it's uh, naturally more artistic if you like than uh, you know yeah. bomb and gouge this type of stuff but uh, and I think but as I turned professional and sought to improve myself and worked with different coaches, I became more technical. I tried to understand the technique more. And I think I had spells where I, you know, I got totally paralyzed by the technical aspects of the golf swing, right? And, and, and I went away from playing golf artistically. The problem is, if you want to be world class, which we're all striving to be, you know, you have to, we have to try and improve yourself. And so... You know, uh, I wanted to be a better ball striker, so I'm not just going to wake up one morning and be a better ball striker because I can visualise striking the ball better. I've got to actually physically move differently. So to teach yourself to move differently requires a technical understanding of how you're going to do it or what you're going to do, and then obviously practice. So how then people go about that is what causes issues or what causes success. And But I think what I did well last year was I went back to a more artistic way of playing golf in terms of higher spin on the ball so if we talk about technical aspects of golf in terms of more backspin allowed me to shape the ball a little bit more off the tee which was the one area of the game that crippled me and then I could allow myself to play from there really to my strength so so you were afforded the ability to play more artistic because your technique had improved well so what I did was I I, I came out of a contract where I I'm a believer in that I found it easier to get the ball in play when I had more backspin on the golf ball so I went to a much higher spinning setup in terms of the tightless driver with a Pro V1X as opposed to a TaylorMade with a TP5X and therefore I learned or I realised oh I can I can draw the ball 20 yards all of a sudden or I can hit a low fade and squeeze it into play rather than have to stand up on every tee and hit the perfect golf swing which Justin Rose does which well he's a phenomenal golfer I'm not as good as Justin Rose I can't do that so I had to become more artistic and I had to change the you know the technical aspects of the equipment side of things that would allow me to do that and that's what i learned in changing it yeah so that was there a big technical change that accompanied that well i think it was a bit of both like it was it, it was initially probably there was a slight technical change initially also sorry there was a tight slight technical change but then changing the golf ball and all of a sudden seeing much more backspin made me realize oh wow i can actually I can actually hit this golf shot so I could play more creatively off the tee to get the ball in play. So it was a combination of the two. But I, I wouldn't want to underestimate the importance of the actual the golf ball and these types of things, those parameters, because that was a huge for me. And that's something that when I speak to guys and they, you know, and I hear these golf commentators say how easy it is now to drive the ball well, and I just think it's absolute bollocks because actually it just requires a different set of skills. And you can't, and I don't, in my experience, I found it harder to hit the perfect golf swing which is a dead straight bomb, you know, than uh, a low cut into play or, or a big hook into play. I actually found it harder to hit the perfect golf shot because I'm not good enough. So when I hear people say it's easy nowadays, I think that's rubbish. I have all credit to Justin Rose and these guys who can stand up there and repeat a swing on tap because that is a skill that's really difficult to achieve. So I think I'm a bit of a throw, but I think I'm, I'm the kind of guy that would have been better in the 50s, you know, with my, with my set of dynamics, swing dynamics, and I've got to learn to play in the modern way. So 
two, three months ago, you win. And on your blog, you said that maybe you didn't have your best stuff. Technically, you said your course management, patience and, and clutch putts were the three things that really allowed you to win while not having maybe your best stuff. So what I want to talk about is the course management work and just how important the decision making was and how that decision making performance was maybe set apart from other performances. Was your decision making just that much better? No, I mean, the thing is, my strategy came about through a weakness and fear. I'm not a good driver of the golf ball. So I would stand on a number of tees and not feel comfortable in the driver out. So, But I've got a strong three-wood, which I know I have a real strong, a strong shot pattern with. And I totally understand it. And, and I just pull that one out. And if I sacrifice 20 yards, well, I, I sacrifice 20 yards. But to me, that's not then doesn't become a weakness. It can become a strategic strength. My big strength's my own play. So... That was my strategy on that week, but that's been my strategy for nine months. And I've struck the ball well enough in a number of events over the last nine months to win. I've just putted terribly statistically. But this time round, I happened to just hold a couple of those six footers that you've got to hold on a Sunday to win. And, uh, and that was the difference in terms of the clutch putting. But the strategy comes in, it came in not through that's necessarily thought, it comes in through fear and uh, born from weakness. So you say fear, but also through self-awareness, right? Right. Yeah. That's one piece that as we have more and more conversations, it keeps this common thread of reflection and clearly reflection and self-awareness is a huge strength of yours. So as you've exhibited through social media and your blog of this really introspective, thoughtful insights and really candid and really open sharing these deep reflection that you've had. So my question is, do you feel like if every golfer has a superpower, uh, I know it's odd to say, but normally we, we think like, Oh, this guy grabs it really well. This guy puts it really well. Can reflection be one of those things that you, you mentioned your, your strokes gain punting? So that means that if you're reflecting on objective data of your performance, that's a form of reflection. Yeah. So you have a blog that's journaling. That's a form of reflection. Yeah. So would you identify that as being a way that you've moved the needle as being really good at reflecting and growing your self-awareness as a player? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, that is... Well, that is the journey. I mean, that is surely how you get better. That's the feedback loop, right? I mean, if you just didn't reflect, if you just didn't look back, then well, I don't, you'd just be wandering around. You'd be just some clueless soul wandering about in a desert of emptiness, you know? I mean, like, and I, I don't feel like that guy, to be honest. I, you know, I'm probably the opposite. You know, I'm in a, I'm in a shaded woodland. I need to get out there, you know, um, free myself up sometimes. But yeah, definitely, I'm probably more that way inclined than some. Why? Why is that? What do you think it is about your upbringing, your, your development that made, uh, maybe it's just inherent to you? Why are you so good at that reflection process? I don't know. I mean, probably comes down to a number of the books I've read uh, in the past. And so, you know, it was uh, from when I was 18, 19, it was how am I going to get better? Well, it's by focusing on my weaknesses, not by emboldening my strengths. So can you remember those books by name? Yeah, so things like Matthew Said and Bounce and the Talent Code, these, these you know, they were the, the generic books out at the time. I just read them and I enjoyed them, you know, and it just, and I read a number of autobiographies, mostly funny enough from rugby players back in England. And uh, I felt like I connected a lot with uh, those sportsmen just by simply realizing that actually they struggled and they were never perfect and they, you know, weren't this great performer at 19, but they were great when they were 25 and 30. So, I just think those, those kind of realizations helped me as an individual. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement 
couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. So let's go back to 2016. And I, I know you've said that obviously the performances weren't what you wanted during that time. Uh, so you went through a, a period where you felt like maybe you were out of form in 2016. So how did you face that? How did you get out of it? What was the process that you went through to overcome that period? Reflection, I mean, you know, and, and pretty ruthless decision making. Like, I mean, I, I, halfway through 2016, I was struggling with my game. I was still inside the top 110, I think, in the race to buy, but I was struggling. And I wanted to change and I knew I had to improve. So like every decision I've always made has always been under the impression that I'm going to improve, you know, via this decision. And in hindsight, it was just not probably correct to, to change coach or to go to the coach I did. And that's no disrespect to the coach I went to. I think it's very good, but it just wasn't for me. But, short, you know, shortly after losing my card, I, I did realize just how far away I'd, well, I'd lost what was a strength. I mean, not only did I not improve my driving, but I'd lost my hind play. So it was kind of like, well, I'm doubly, I'm doubly screwed, you know, and, and I couldn't afford to be that. So um, I went back to my old coach and just thought a lot about it. I just thought a lot about my golf swing and, um, you know, yeah, I mean, just, just went back and had some pretty frank talks with my old coach and, uh, from memory, that was kind of what I did. So that sounds surprisingly form centric. Like I, I changed my form and I got better. And to me, there, there's gotta be some kind of psychological obstacle to overcome from that period in 2016. Or was that not the case? Was it just, uh, I just had yeah, I'm not better. a believer in that you become a bad player of a night. I just think you make decisions and they manifest into something horrific or something very good. Right. I mean, you know, I, I don't become an, a non-talented player in three months. I just had shit three months. And like, you know, Danny Willett's having a crap 18 months, but lo and behold, he's nearly leading this tournament. You don't lose your, your ability to play golf and you don't lose, you know, that. I've played golf since I was four. I've always been a really good golfer. I've always done well at any level. So I'm not just going to wake up one morning and not know how to play golf. That's just, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I just lost my technical ability to do something well enough at this level. Simple as that. So you've got to get better at it. Is that a realization that you came to eventually? You know, when we talk to a player as a coach and they're struggling, it's like, but you didn't just forget how to do it. You were doing it last week and it just didn't happen overnight where now you can. And so I'm curious as to how you're able to reframe that kind of insight or, or that awareness to the situation, or if it was something that happened over time uh, or with the support of others that were helping you out. Yeah, I know. It's just observations over time. You know, I, I, I try to observe a lot of other people, not just in golf, but in all walks of life. I think there are so many similarities in success and failure in any and in every industry and that's what i love about life you know there are some seemingly universal principles that just hold up and stand up and you know i observe that in other people and i'm i don't believe i'm unique so if i believe they exist in other people then i'd be arrogant to believe they don't exist in me Okay, so if I could put you on the spot, if there's, if you're saying that there's, there's one, two, or three, or four of those elements, uh, I mean, certainly that's what we're trying to identify, right? For all of our players as coaches, it's like, here are the principles that successful people exhibit. Off the top of your head, if you had to say this is your observation, the most successful people, uh, whether they be in sport or otherwise, have A, B, and C. What are those elements? Well, I think people recognize cycles. People, smart people and smart businesses recognize behavior, human behavior and cycles. And they recognize that there is built in, in, there are built in discrepancies and inconsistencies within that. So 
first and foremost, what you must then do is not be too hard on yourself because there is inherently a cycle that's built in seemingly in every single thing we do. So when things aren't going right, you know, give yourself a break or look at it analytically and say, well, is there something I can do differently? I think for me, what I realized when I changed coach was I tried to change coach to improve under the idea and the impression that I could become a golfer that in hindsight I couldn't become but wanted to become. So I, you know, used to use the phrase at dinner about being being Adam Scott. You know, like I would love to wake up one morning and be Adam Scott, but you know, I'm, I'm just going to be some chubby lad from Oxfordshire, quite frankly. So I have to master what I can do, and there's my own little pattern, and uh, and I have to understand that little pattern. And because I've played golf for so long, unfortunately, it's so ingrained. And uh, you know, that's why to me, the guys you look at, if you were a kid and you wanted to identify what it takes to be great at golf, you look at Sergio Garcia, you look at Jim Furyk, because you see a pattern that someone's mastered. You don't see perfection. And it's easier to see the imperfections in Jim Furyk than it is in Adam Scott. And that's a big lesson that people must understand, I think. And uh, those two things, and I, and I wouldn't know what else. It comes back a little bit to that answer and leads back to that self-awareness piece that as we're talking, sounds like a really powerful separator for you just that self-awareness. So my follow-up question is if there's a time where you felt like, uh, because sometimes there, there's a dual piece to these superpowers where these really powerful psychological characteristics that high performers have that, for example, someone is a perfectionist and it drives them to a certain level, but then they go overboard and they're overly critical and it becomes a detriment to them. So my question is, can self-awareness have that same quality where, and maybe let me frame this a different way, for example, Steve Jobs is famous for having what they called this reality distortion field where he had a perception of events that maybe was not always the accurate perception, but it was one that uh, favored his his opinion, right. meaning there was no self-awareness. He had this overly confident, possibly arrogant view of a situation or maybe overly optimistic is a better way to put it to where it just wasn't very realistic. It wasn't self-aware. So um, uh, my question, is there a time where you feel like your self-awareness could be a detriment or is there a balance that, that you have to find? Well, no, and uh, because I think that's pseudo self-awareness and I don't think I ever suffer from that. And I wish I did sometimes. I think I'd be a better golfer if I did, but I'm too realistic in my views, not just of golf, but in life and humanity to honestly, I think, view myself in that way or approach events that way or reflect on events that way so yeah i mean you know these geniuses like you've described as steve jobs i think they have things they have those traits that are irrational and i think we'll look at them and think well somewhat crazy but it's what makes that person right yeah. tick and it's what makes them incredible but uh i'm just um yeah i just feel like i'm i'm depressingly realistic and to my detriment you know but uh I, I, I try to ensure, because of my interest outside of golf, and, and they're not that many, but a couple, I think they, they help me with a certain sense of realism and perspective away from the golf course. So I, I found that's really helped me. And, and I often talk about what happened in 2016 and when I talk a lot about cycles. You know, I really enjoy reading up on the economy and all sorts of things related to that. And so when I look at that and I, and I see commentary on that, you know, there's the business cycle, right? It's the number one driving factor behind recessions and, and economic booms. And it's, it just seems that, you know, no matter who you are, you're, you're prone to, to prone to these cycles, like they affect you. So, so you hit that down cycle and you hit this time where things aren't going well, what's the self-talk look like? Is it, this uh, instant understanding where you have this, that you're able to accept right away, okay, this is just a down cycle? 
yeah i mean literally and and i do talk to myself every day you know when i'm in the shower and driving in the car i'm talking to myself out loud and as if i'm giving an interview you know because i find it really helps me clarify my own thoughts um and yeah it's uh you know it's just how do i make this not a depression and uh and what have I got to do? And, and often it just comes back to the basics. You know, that's the beauty of sports, the beauty of golf and anything. You know, just what have I got to do on the basic fundamental level to ensure that I put some sort of floor underneath this downturn so that when I'm on a golf course and all of a sudden I'm two under through six, which is a change because you used to being two over through six, how am I going to respond to that? And, and you know, am I going to have a bit more resilience built in and my later shots in the round? Because that's what it comes down to. So, yeah, I mean, I did, I did think of it that way and it yeah. definitely helped me. In a given week, I'm really interested in how the action or reflection actually occurs. You know, there's there's this little theme that we've got working here, and that's reflection, that you're talking to yourself, you're using other outlets to reflect. So, let's just take a week. How is that habit of yours manifested into daily activity or, or actions that you take? Just so somebody that can listen to this and say, okay, well, I realize that reflection and self-awareness are really important. Now, how can I go apply this into what I do on a daily basis? When it comes to my golf... I'm so reflective after every shot, it's incredible. I mean, if I'm not doing a drill after a shot, even if I've hit a perfect shot or a bad shot, it's it's unusual. I mean, I mean, talk sound next to Laurie, you know, I've seen videos of him doing drills with the parsnip in Waitrose, you know, and, and that's no joke. I mean, we're just, we're just, <laughs> we're just crazy like that. But for me, you know, if I'm, if I hit an iron shot, I know what the perfect feel feels like with a six iron. I know what the feeling feels like if I'm late, but from a good delivery position, i.e. I'm not coming from on top, I'm from inside, but I'm just late, I leak it, I know what that feels like, fine. If I'm, my dreaded feeling is I'm, I'm high on the plane, but the club face is behind my hands, so I hit a pull draw, and I'm, I'm totally fucked off, you know? I don't know if that's going to go in. I'm, I'm hacked off, because I, to my mind, when I feel that and I see that shot pattern, I recognize there's trouble potentially on the horizon. And, and so I'm so reflective when it comes to my golf swing after every shot and after every putt. But that helps me stay like in the moment in every round of golf. And I'm such a perfectionist on the golf course, but off the golf course, I'm far from that. And, and I, think that's a, I think that's a good mix to have. I think you're much better off being that way than the other way because I can switch off off the golf course and enjoy myself. And when I'm on the golf course or I'm in around the game, I can be really tough, tough on myself, but I'm cool with that. So how do you find a balance there? Because that, that's one of those superpower characteristics that we keep hearing from players. You know, one, they can be hyper competitive individuals and two, they're often obsessive perfectionists, but that can be one of those superpowers that can go the other way. It can, can be a detriment. It can, it can actually be negative if players are overly critical um, where nothing's ever good enough. You know, and so I, I hear perfectionism. I'm always curious and well, how do we balance, you know, so where you're not going home and, and beating yourself up after a bad round. No, and I, and I and I don't really ever do that. And and you know, my life at home has been steady for a decade. I mean, I've had the same girlfriend. You know, everything at home for me is is, is there's no trouble. You know, so it's great. I mean, I, and, but when I'm at a golf tournament, I I obsess over my technique and and I and where I reflect. But at the same time, I'll, I think I'll be kind of keeping a potentially bigger picture or short picture in mind within that round of golf. So if there's a general underlying theme of I keep cocking rounds up and this is happening again, then there's an impatience that creeps in and it, and it gets frustrating and then you have to manage that. But there'll be times like today where in the Italian Open and I'm playing good, swinging good. I mean, I might hit one bad shot, leads to a silly bogey, but it's not worth me snapping a club over because I'm still going to shoot five under par in this round of golf. The only reason I'm not going to is if I totally get my own way. So let's not do something crazy. 
but I think there are times when you know it's right to lose lose your shit on the golf course. I I, I don't I don't care when I see Rory throw a four iron in the lake at the row. I think it's great. I think he's reached boiling point, and we should see Rory reaching boiling point because that's what makes Rory McIlroy Rory McIlroy, right? Well, when you get to that boiling point, you don't see a negative impact on performance right after that. Oh, probably, but, but I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. I, I don't care if I finish 30th or miss a cut. I only care what, how good I am when I'm good. And, you know, I'm not going to waste energy ne- unnecessarily at finishing 60th. I'm just not interested in that. And I don't think Roy McIlroy is interested in that. I think there are some great professionals that are interested in that. And all credit to that person because I couldn't behave like that. And, and I admire them. I'm just not built that way, you know, and, and, and I'm cool with that. It just, I think it allows me to preserve energy, mental energy. And, you know, when, when I'm good, I want to be really, really good, you know? Yeah. That's a interesting take on perfectionism that I don't think I've heard. And I brought up competitiveness as being one of those things, uh, as, as being really important or one of the common factors that we've seen in a lot of great players. And this started from uh, a research paper by a guy named McNamara, who wrote a paper called psychological characteristics of developing excellent. It's an English guy who interviewed all these British Olympians. And what he tried to find were all these Olympians that were successful. Well, what do they all have in common? What are the, the psychological personality traits? And competitiveness was one that kept coming up over and over again. And, and knowing you for a short time, the conversation over dinner, you know, it's not something that I really pick up from you right away. So I'm curious to, to bring that up with you. If one, do you feel like you're competitive? Do you feel like it's a requirement to have that hyper competitiveness? And, and is it something that you feel shows up when you're actually on the golf course? Yeah. I mean, when you talk about the two things earlier of competitiveness and obsessiveness with perfection, I do feel I'm much more on the spectrumal side of obsessiveness with perfection than I am competitiveness. You know, I, I mean, I think I have a pretty small ego and, and I, and, and because of my worldviews, I think that lends me to not being that competitive consciously. However, I do think subconsciously I'm pretty damn competitive, you know, and when I'm out there on the golf course, you know, because it's so ingrained in my character and my psyche golf, I think there are some subconscious things that happen to me that, that definitely make me a competitor, you know. Uh, and growing up, I enjoyed competing. I mean... So what other sports did you play growing up? Well, I played football. I mean, that's soccer in the UK. I mean, that was the only thing I played. And I was decent and I was yeah. good, but I much preferred golf. The The thing with competitiveness, and I say this to kids, is that you've just not got to hate competing. Like my brother, we were both good golfers, but when he would travel to tournaments, he'd be sick and I wouldn't. And I just think that's just... If you're sick on the way to competing, then you're not likely to stick with it. Whereas I'm not saying I loved it, but I wasn't sick. So like it never had that influence on me where it made me think, I don't want to go and play this golf tournament today because I'm I'm afraid of being sick, you know, out of nerves and fear. So the only thing I didn't have in the past that I had in Qatar was a swing feeling that I found easy to trust under pressure. I mean, my shot patterns changed under pressure in the past because I found it really difficult to trust the swing feeling that I had going on. And I recognize that among other golfers. So, for example, why is it that I'm just going to reel off? I mean, I think I'm right in saying Zach Johnson has won more PGA Tour events than, say, Paul Casey. Well, he definitely has. Or Henrik Stenson. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense when you watch them on the range. But what it shows me is when one guy gets into the pressure of contention, they they find it easier to replicate the correct golf shot or a good golf shot than the other. And finally, in Qatar, having worked with a new coach, I had a feeling where I could actually nothing changed it so fresh, it was fresh. it was a fresh feeling but it was a it was a different feeling it wasn't to do with arms and fingers and hands it was to do with hips it was to do with a thing that could 
these things just go quick let it go quick and you're going to hit a good shot and that's exactly how I felt and I hit good shots so it was brilliant for me because in the past I've always had to speed the arms up slow the hips down well anyone who's played golf under pressure will know that you're not likely to hit great shots so in some of the younger players that we talk to uh, they're sometimes surprised when we say that look the best players in the world it's not like they're blank there are some swing thoughts so speak to that a little bit to where if you're talking to someone else who's aspiring to your level, especially you know when we're talking about not a developing player, but a higher performing young athlete, uh, that there is some attention on the technical. That's, that's what I'm getting right here is that there's this myth that you get to the spot to where everything is automated and there's no form attention exists, but that's not what we're, what we're hearing here from you, right? No, not at all. I'm, I can't remember the last time I played with that golf without a swing feeling. I've certainly not shot a good score without having at least one swing feeling. You know, I play golf with two swing feelings now and I have done for a few months and they both cause quite different conditions in my downswing. So I, the job for me is simply recognizing that pattern and how it develops and then I have to switch thoughts. So these are fluid. These are not remaining the same over a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely fluid. Like absolutely fluid. Like I have my own little tendencies in my golf swing, and I know. So ninety percent of my practice, ninety-five percent of my practice, is what I do. What I call a reroute drill. I try to get my arm played much deeper on the downswing, and then turn hard through it. So effectively, I'm hitting a fade from an inside position. So my arm path would be in to in. My body is completely covering. My hips are open. It's the classic position. And that's all I try to do. But when I get on the golf course, I know what happens to me is my arm path does get a little higher but if i you know i try to get under the plane with that drill and then feel hips because then my hips chuck the arms out higher and i'm in this goldilocks spot but it's, it's a constant fluid situation that always has to be monitored and then you have to see shot patterns and recognize can i go out today and trust that i'm not going to hit one shot left and if you can you're going to shoot 65 if you putt well or if you see one shot left right now what do i do now you know there's a there's an apps it's constantly fluid you know but that's I don't think it's not fluid for any golf on the planet. I mean, I just refuse to believe that. And I hear it's way too complicated not to be, absolutely. And, you know, the, 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 for me, the, the ultimate goal would be to have one or two swing forts the rest of my career and absolutely nail them. And and when I see when I hear people like Sergio Garcia, who I'm a big fan of, talk about pulling the chain down, it's all he's worked on since he was 14 with his dad. Well, there you go. He just pulls the chain with his arms and he just, rode, as a consequence of pulling the chain down, he knows he has to rotate hard, hard, hard. And... That's just a swing feeling he's had for two or three decades. No wonder he's brilliant at golf. I mean, it's, you know, it's not really that complicated, but if you're flittering between swing thoughts on a weekly basis and I've been there, it's chaos. Yeah. Looking forward to next year. Uh, obviously the players that we coach, they have aspirations and they have goals. And so they always want to hear from other players that have reached those big goals and get an idea of how they reach those and what framework that they would follow. So my question uh, if you care to share, which I don't feel like that you've you've held much back on us. What are your aspirations for next year? You know, do you have a plan that you have that that you're going about attacking, or is it taking one day at a time? Or do you feel like, okay, I, I got this kind of plan that that structured way that I'm going to go about attacking whatever goal it is that you have for next year? And there's zero structure with me. There's zero structure and there's zero goals. Like I mean, because truthfully, I, I couldn't. You could give me a goal. I could tell you right now, my goal is to be top twenty in the world, but. Tomorrow, if I hook a six iron on the first, I am not giving two shits about that goal. You know what I mean? And I couldn't care less. It means nothing to me. I'm much more of an in-the-moment kind of guy, but not because I choose to be or want to be, just because I haven't got any goals. So, like, and, and I haven't had for years. You know, I, I just think, do the right things with your game. Just constantly look at it. Constantly look at what's going on. What do you actually want from your game? Like, I, you know, I've become a lot better at recognising the habits of my game. So what do I... You know, I want to walk onto a golf course feeling really comfortable with my irons because I know 
if I hit my irons poorly, my stats show I'm going to really struggle to do any good this golf tournament. So I have to hit my irons well. That's like the number one priority for me. So, you know, what I found about the stats is that actually helped me be more like that. Actually helped me have direction in that sense. But that's how I play my game. You know, I haven't got any goals moving forward or anything. Okay, so my follow-up question to no goals is what's the motivation then? You know, what, what is the source of the drive and that intrinsic motivation uh, that you have that's pushing you forward? Because you're certainly practicing and you're working hard and you're traveling around the, the world chasing this and trying to get better. So where does that come from if not through the pursuit of, of certain goals? So the source of that motivation, I know that may be a, a heavy question. It's because it's all I've got. What would I do if I wasn't a golfer? I don't know. I'd be shit scared and I'd be poor. I mean, so the Frank, I've got to, I want to be, I've got to be good at it, you know, and, and the better I am at it, well, the earlier I can retire and then I can deal with that, you know, problem when I reach 40 or 45. I mean, honestly, it's as simple as that for me. I, I just, yeah, I, I haven't, you know, I honestly don't feel motivated in any way to have any records, anything like that. You know, I just want to be a really good golfer because, well, it's my job. So I want to be good at it. And, and and when I think back to when I was a kid and what I admired when I did go to the odd golf event, it was watching Alex Noren on the range or Serge on the range. I want to I want to be to that kid what Alex Noren was to me, right? I want some kid to come watch me and be like, God, oh, did you see Eddie hit that five iron into the third? You know, that was awesome. And that's inspirational. And that's cool for me. You know, that's a cool moment. But that's it. I honestly couldn't really say anything other than that. You know, it was just, just the way I am. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 